Hello and welcome to the RI Science Podcast. This month, writer and broadcaster Dallas Campbell talks to former Christmas lecturer and fellow space nerd Kevin Fong about all things space travel and Dallas's new book, Ad Astra, an illustrated guide to leaving the planet. Thank you very much. Um, I'm Kevin Fong, and I'm here to introduce the fantastic Dallas Campbell and to talk to him about his brilliant book, uh, which is Ad Astra, an illustrated guide to leaving the planet. So Dallas, yes. as you all know, uh, is a well-known broadcaster, but he adds now to his list um, author as things that you do. The little-known fact about Dallas is that he was very, very, very nearly a Christmas lecturer in 2014. And it was the year before your... Was it, it was your... the year, year before... Yeah. yeah, well, that's why I haven't come back for two years. Gonna, <laughs> I can barely sit here without having a panic attack it's these days. Like, <laughs> it's very stressful. Honestly, it's really stressful. Uh, I am. Um, Dallas was very... You were, you were the fantastic Professor Daniel George's understudy. Do you know the story about how this happened? I do, and it still makes me wince, but you... you Daniel George, who was, who was presenting the Christmas lecture that year, who's a good friend. Um, but she neglected to tell the Royal Institution that she was pregnant and her due date was the first Christmas lecture. And then as, and as the kind of rehearsal period went on and she grew and got larger and larger, I think somebody noticed, Is, oh, where's Ollie? Is Ollie here? And Ollie said, somebody said, oh my goodness, when, when are you due? And then the, the news came out. So I got this frantic call saying, look, you're going to have to learn the, the whole Christmas lecture and do it just in case... Uh, in case she she drops, so I was busy feeding her curry, trying to make her, trying to make her give birth. I was like, "Come on!" Shaking her, trying to make her give birth, so I could do the Christmas lecture. <laughs> I didn't do the Christmas lecture, and uh, always yeah. uh, the understudy, always the bridesmaid. It's unlike true. you. And, and yeah, and the, the year I did, I made sure I wasn't pregnant. But so I no, I, uh, exactly. So it was a brilliant Christmas lecture. I have to say, I enjoyed it. Obviously, for obvious spacey kind of reasons. Yeah, you have it, to say that now. Because well, I'm about to know. talk about your book. In oh, fact, yeah. I, in fact, there, there will be bits I nicked from your Christmas <laughs> lecture in that book. Yeah, so. some of this is familiar. Uh, <laughs> now, this I, I loved this, uh, and it's it's it genuinely is illustrated guide, but it's, it's essentially full of all those stories that we kind of talk about in the pub. <laughs> that you've come across in, in your broadcasting and, and just through your enthusiasm for it. Um, uh, 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 you've got more space stuff than I've got hanging around, and I've got a lot of space stuff. But I wanted to really start by asking you, what of all of these, I mean, there's a load of stories about space, and, and I yeah. thought I knew a lot of them, but there's loads. What is your favourite story? I went quite deep, space? I went quite deep. I mean, the thing is, I mean, obviously you know a lot about space, and, and, I, and I've, over the last few years worked as a, as a broadcaster and as a journalist in various bits of that industry. So you pick up lots of stuff and you meet lots of people. But I kind of realized, talking to people who aren't involved in it, they, they've heard of Buzz Aldrin and they've heard of Neil Armstrong and they've heard of Tim Peake. And that's kind of where it ends. And for me, there's, it's not even about the space that's interesting. There's so much about our culture and our history that was wrapped up in the story of how we left the planet. So much of our politics, of our art, of our philosophy... Um, of our literature is all in there. So I, I kind of did this big deep dive and did this mixtape of the, of exactly as you say, the slightly lesser known stories. Um, and some of them are just absolutely barking mad. I, actually, my, probably my favorite one, in fact, it was probably the main reason I wrote the book was because we think about the space race, we tend to think of the Americans getting to the moon first. 
um, because we think of Apollo 11, 1969. But actually, we forget about the Apollo missions before that. So the Apollo astronauts, Apollo 8 was the first, 1968, uh, where they went around the moon. They didn't land, they went around the moon and then came back to prove it could be done. Um, but before that, a couple of months before that, without telling anyone, the Russians uh, on Zond 5, which is a little-known um, mission, sent two uh, Russian step tortoises around the moon. So two tortoises went around the moon in complete secret. Jodrell Bank tracked them. <coughs> Jodrell Bank knew about it, but they didn't know there were tortoises on board. And then the tortoises came back and beat the Americans to the moon. And it was this sort of little-known story that made me really happy that these... And also, they were Russian steppe tortoises. For the whole life of the tortoises, their whole worldview, their whole philosophy would have just been the horizon, this, the Russian Kazakhstan steppe. And suddenly, revealed to them the, the, the overview effect the world was around. And to me, it, just, it, it, it was an extraordinary... Um, Thing. So in this sort of epic story of mankind and, 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 <laughs> and, and, and our stretching out into the, the, front, the final frontier, yeah. your favourite story is but two, also two the fact that Yeah, the two tortoises. But also, like, if you're going to choose an astronaut, if you're going to choose a creature to go into space, of course you're going to choose tortoises. They have like built-in spacesuits. <laughs> you know, they're, they're on re-entry, the crushing you know, re-entries where you're sort of hitting 9G, the tortoises are going to be fine. Psychologically, they're fine. They're very low maintenance. They're not stressy. They're just, they just do their thing. And the interesting thing about the tortoises, when they came back, they were absolutely fine. One of them had lost 10% of its body weight, um, but, th but otherwise they were unharmed. They were unnamed. Forever in history, they will, they will not be named. I spent about a month tracking, g getting in touch with people, trying to find out whether the tortoises had names, what became of them, because technically they probably could still be alive. How long did tortoises live? Maybe Tonlera has got them. Yeah, maybe. And maybe. Anyway, so yeah, that, so the, yeah, the Zon 5 tortoises are like, anyway, they're in the book. <laughs> So, we started with Werner von Braun, and actually we've got the other famous rocket scientists. So, you know, the whole of human spaceflight really yeah. starts with... Well, I mean, if we want to... I mean, these are the guys, these are the, the, the sort of big names, I suppose, of, of which I, I talk a little bit about. So, who knows? Does everyone have... Who can name them all? Does anyone want to have a go naming all of them? Go on, then, at the front. I can't quite see, but go on. No, I can't. I can think it's von Braun at the end. Where von Braun... Four. Who knows four? No. That's three. <laughs> but good, you're thinking ahead. So four is Hermann Obert. Um, so actually, four and five. So Hermann Obert sort of preceded von Braun in, in, in the sort of Weimar Germany before the Second World War. The, 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 the Germans obviously had the, this great rocket club. This idea of rocketry was, was, um, was, very, was very popular. And Hermann Obert was the great rocket scientist of the, of the time who Werner von Braun wanted to be. You know, he learnt... He wanted to learn mathematics just so he could understand his book. So, so four and five, we've got Germany covered. Three, exactly right, Korolev, Sergei uh, Korolev, who was known as the, the chief designer. Um, and after the war, some of the rocket scientists went to America and some went to Russia, uh, the Soviet Union. And Korolev was the designer of what was, what was the R-7 intercontinental ballistic missile, which was designed to launch a, a warhead onto... America, but actually they realized it was much better for launching Sputnik and Laika the dog and Yuri Gagarin and Tereshkova. It became, it became Soyuz, so he was very, very influential. Two, the American Robert Goddard, of course, who did a lot of early uh, rocket experiments on his aunt's farm in Massachusetts. And number one, anyone want to have a go? Tsiolkovsky, exactly, this great kind of Russian visionary. I became really interested in him because... 
as well, you know, he did the mathematics that, that uh, really taught us that we could actually go into space and actually use a reaction engine that would work in the vacuum of space. But also he was, a, he was part of this transhumanist world of Russian cosmism at the time that believed that human beings belonged through science and technology we would spread throughout the cosmos. And you kind of see that throughout Russian spaceflight today, this sort of superstition and the fact that you have Russian priests blessing the rockets still. It's still that it kind of filters through. Uh, the thing I find most striking about that lineup, actually, yeah. is, is that you know, we have this heroic and very romantic vision of human space exploration, but that, there's quite a lot of darkness in there, isn't there? Well, of course. I mean, the fact that, you know, the, the, really the, the, the American space program, well, the, the space program generally began, it, it, you know, the first thing into space was launched on a V-2 rocket. And, of course, the V-2 was developed at Pinamunde towards the end of the war as the sort of last-ditch attempt um, for the Germans to win. And, of course, you know, von Braun was a Nazi officer. And, but his, his defense was always like, well, you know, I'm not I interested in that. On, I just yeah, want to yeah. build rockets and go into space. But, you know, th that comes with a price. It comes with that yeah. history that th through that was a lot of suffering. I mean, a lot of the labor for the V2 came from um, concentration camps. So it's all tied up in that. So, and, you know, that's a difficult thing for people to, to, to realize. I mean, he was famously featured in a Disney film, post-war Disney. I yeah. think it was a Disney film. Man I, in I, Space, yeah. I, I, I think there was, oh, and there was an article that followed that, which had the title, I Shoot for the Moon. And, yeah. And, 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 and someone said, you shoot for the moon, but sometimes you used to hit London. Well, uh, exactly, this is it. <laughs> well, the interesting thing is, uh, yeah, I mean, that was, in, that was a Collier's magazine. And actually, Von Braun became this face, this PR face of this new breed of superhero called the astronaut. And of course, he and Walt Disney were in cahoots. I mean, Walt Disney produced all these films with Von Braun. Von Braun on camera, Man in Space being the, the, the famous one about how we will live in space, how we will be going to Mars. And of course, Von Braun had this wonderful plan of sending fleets of ships to Mars. Uh, and suddenly, the, the public mood post-war was caught up in this new world of space travel, and we're all going to be jetting off to the moon and Mars, and it would happen in our lifetime. But there is, exactly as you say, it comes, there is a dark history to it. Do, I mean, do you think that they were that category of interested scientist stroke engineer who, who cared more about what they were doing than what it might be doing? I don't know. I, I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, I think they were so wrapped up in, what, in, in the hobby of rocketry, particularly in, in Germany at the time. They were so enamored by this idea of... of particularly going to the moon. In fact, it wasn't, I mean, all of them, I mean, it, it was this. This is, this is, so this is from the, the, the famous film, Melier's um, uh, Journey to the Moon, based on the Jules Verne story. And so Jules Verne, who was writing in the 1860s, his idea of getting to the moon was building a giant gun, a cannon. And it was people like Tsiolkovsky who actually did the mathematics to work out, would that be possible? Could you actually put people in some kind of shell and actually fired them to the moon. Of course, they, were, they realized that they, that they couldn't do that. It would be absolutely impossible. The, the forces involved would crush anyone. And so it was from that, it's from this obsession um, that was born from science fiction, early science fiction, um, that these, the, the, those men that we've seen particularly were really, really inspired. In fact, all of them, Von Braun could, could memorize from the Earth to the moon. I mean, he knew it backwards. I mean, that particular story, we would not have gone to the moon when we did without if Jules Verne had not written that, I don't think. But, but I do think it's interesting, that idea 
of shooting stuff into space. I mean, it yeah. isn't that far wrong. I mean, all no. the stuff that we put into space at the moment is ballistic in, in, in trajectory. You fire it. I mean, a rocket is really like a very sophisticated bullet with quite a long burning charge on the back of it. Yeah. But it needs a lot of maths to get it there. Exactly. You need a bit of maths. And, and you know, we move on from that, really, and, and we get into that period where I certainly, I certainly fell in love with human space exploration of, of Apollo, really. And, and quite a lot of yeah. your book is taken up with these, this, uh, it's difficult because there is so much and so many stories of that. But um, um, it, it's a crazy time, Apollo. I mean, to go from that speech at Rice University, I think it's 62, to being on the moon in 69. Absolutely. Well, it this is a crazy time. It was. I mean, I, like we, as a kid, I mean, I grew up, I was born in 1970, so I was born right in the middle. So Apollo, we were on the moon when I was born. And I, Obviously, I don't remember it until afterwards, but growing up as a kid, it was still a recent memory, and that's what people did. People went to other planets and stuck flags and did geology and did science and wore these extraordinary spacesuits. Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> so yes, no, Apollo, I mean, there's a lot of Apollo stories in, in there. I mean, I think part of the reason that people find it difficult to believe that we went to the moon at that time, you know, at, the at a time when, you know, flares were in fashion and digital watches were cool is because it just seems so unbelievable and we seem to have done it so easily. But of yeah. course it wasn't easy, was it? No. And, and, and all of the missions were fraught with either, well, some of them were met with disaster, some of them near disaster. And actually if you trace Apollo's 11 through our final lunar excursion, they all had near misses. 11 had that, that, that near abortive lunar landing. <laughs> And then 12, very famously, um, had, had a moment of, of, of near yeah. disaster. I mean, they really did. I mean, all, all of those missions, I mean, people obviously, we talk about 11 all the time because it was the first one. In fact, they, pretty, they didn't think that Apollo would be the first. I think most people thought Pete Conrad on 12 would be the first person to, to actually set foot on the moon because 11 really was a kind of, well, we'll try it, we'll see what happens, and, and maybe it'll be okay, and maybe it, it won't. But you're right, they nearly ran out of fuel when they were, when they, when they were landing. But 12... You've heard of the phrase steely-eyed missile man. I mean, I, you know, when we, and you know a lot about this, actually, from your astronaut training. You know, what is it that... It's something that I've been thinking about putting this book, the people who work in the, in, in the space industries. And there was a guy on, who was working on Apollo 12 called John Aaron. Okay, and John Aaron was what's known as the ECOM. So he was on the ground, and he was in charge of electricals and combustibles on the emission control. So he was monitoring the, the, the electrics. And this guy, he was 26 years old. And in fact, when he joined NASA, he was even younger. He was in, in his early 20s. His mother was a minister, and his dad worked on a farm, and he always wanted to be a teacher. And he sent this speculative application to NASA that was just getting going at the time. It was kind of Mercury-Gemini time. And he got a job, and he, and, but he was one of these people who just was obsessed by detail. And even though he had his one job in the millions of jobs that, that, that got us to the moon, he wanted to know how everything worked. He, he wanted to know how all the systems of the, of the Saturn V rocket, the rocket that took us to the moon, would work. So he didn't just do his job. He wanted to he watched what other people were doing as well. And for those of you who don't know, Apollo 12, when it launched, it launched in a, in a thunderstorm, and it actually got hit by lightning, and it left the tower. And as the lightning hit, the electrics of the command module went out, so everything went completely black. And they didn't, want to, didn't know what to do. You know. And I print the actual transcripts in the book, because you can hear them going, okay, what is going on? Everything went out. All the lights went out. They lost this. They lost that. The hand would have been on the abort handle, because the last thing you want is a fully fueled Saturn V 
you know, blowing up. So what, what they would have done was aborted the, the pointy bit on top of the rocket, the escape tower would have pulled the astronauts to safety, and then the actual rocket would have blown up over the Atlantic. That was the plan anyway. But just before they were going to do that, this guy John Aaron on the ground said, hang on a sec, switch SCE to AUKS. And everyone went on the, the three astronauts were like, what the heck, what? And then it was F, FCE to AUKS? What the hell's that? And of course, they didn't know. It was some obscure switch behind Alan Bean's head that nobody had ever known about. I mean, if you'd imagine, I've got a pic in the book, actually, I've got the... I have the entire um, control panel, and you have to, I give you, you see if you can find the SCE to AUX switch. But that's what they have to do. Try SCE to AUX. And um, John Aaron had, a few months earlier, had seen in a, in a training simulation, a similar thing happened, uh, it, 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 you know, the same kind of crazy numbers coming up. And just so, just try it. And they've flipped SCE to AUX, and everything was fine, and it, and it, and it fixed everything. And so he became known as the steely-eyed missile man, because that's that's a hard call to make. It's like wow. Well, well it is. and and there, as you say, the vast majority of those mission controllers were in their late twenties, first job out of university. I know. Quite bad if you screw up. And and but it's like these SpaceX guys now. They're all kind of early twenties and these young kids, these super bright kids. And that was certainly, I think, part of the reason they succeeded, because it was populated by people who probably were less scared of failure or didn't really think about the consequences as hard as they might later on in life. Yeah. I think that's how I always feel about it. But I, mean, I think it's incredible, isn't it, how much of Apollo depended upon the technology, but also those people and their intimate knowledge of these arcane systems. Oh, my God. I mean, you can't quite believe how arcane it, it was. When you, when, you, when you, I mean, not it was the most extraordinary bit of kit ever. There was one... Probably one of the main reasons we got to the moon, we, I say we, the Americans got to the moon first, was because of the Apollo guidance computer, the actual bit of kit that would give you the directions of, of where to go. And of course, back then, we didn't have silicon chips. And so the memory, the actual physical memory, was hardwired. And when I say hardwired, I mean literally hardwired. It was called a rope core memory. So the software would have been developed at, at MIT, um, by software engineers who would have written the actual code, and then the actual memory would have been woven with actual bits of copper wire, so through a hole for a one and then round a, a magnetic core for a zero until you actually had... I mean, it was woven on looms, and it was woven by these women, these people who were known as the, the LOLs, the little old ladies, whose job it was to work these looms and actually hand-sew or hand-weave the memory that, that, that got people to the moon. And, there are very, very few images of these people who worked at Raytheon, and this is actually from a, a Raytheon press release, and I actually managed to track down one of these pictures, so I'm very happy. Sadly, she doesn't have a name, so we, we don't know who she is. But it, I mean, it is absolutely gobsmacking in this digital age where you're used to flashing up and down new bits of code out of thin air, that to program the Apollo guidance computer, there was this sort of noughts and crosses thing where whether the... Iron cores were magnetized in a clockwise or anti-clockwise <laughs> direction, depending upon which of it was a one or a zero. Yeah. And that was the substance of the programs that got us to the moon. Absolutely. And I'm very lucky over the last, over the last sort of few months and uh, in, in, the book as, in the book as well, I, I interview various people throughout the, the different bits of the, of the space industry. And one of the um, people I interview is Al Warden, who's the command module pilot of Apollo 15, mm -hmm. who's mm -hmm. become a 
close friend, and it's hilarious. And actually getting all the stories firsthand from these guys, you know, Al's like, how old is that? He's like 85, and he's like, yeah, yeah. he just, yeah, he's amazing. And they've, the, the, listening to those guys is incredible. So It, it, it absolutely is. And, and in fact, um, I had the great pleasure of meeting Dave Scott, who was, of course, yes. 15's commander, and... and, and uh, we were advising on a film or something, and there's me and all of the cast sat around a TV watching the video of the Lunar Rover bouncing up and down. And while we're watching it, Dave Scott comes in behind us and looks at the screen and says, oh yeah, I remember that bit, it was a complete nightmare, couldn't see anything, thought we were gonna crash. <laughs> yeah. And you thought, wow. And I love this picture, because this is a good illustration of these beautiful photos that came from the moon with that yeah. black sky above. And, and actually, there was a, different book about, about the moon called Full Moon, and they actually had to invent a new reprographic process to reproduce the black. And of course, you hit upon this idea for your book, didn't you? <laughs> you decided... <laughs> well, it was that thing of... One of, the, one of the questions that astronauts get asked a lot is, how black is space? In fact, I, Tim Peake's book's out next week. I'll, I'll give that a quick plug. I brought that along because I, in case anyone asks questions, I didn't know I could just... Uh, look at Tim's Ask an Astronaut book. But it, it, it's in there. He t Tim talks about just how you can't quite conceive how black it is. And actually talking to Al as well in the book, because Al Warden, one of his many um, claims to fame was that he was the first person to actually do a deep space EVA. So EVA is a, is a spacewalk. And we see them on the International Space Station, astronauts like Tim doing spacewalks. But Al Warden actually did one in deep space, in, in cislunar space, in between the, the moon and the Earth which is pretty hardcore. And he was saying, you just look at the universe and you can't quite conceive how black it is. I mean, you see the star field, but behind it is this black. I remember when I had this idea for, for writing this book, and this substance had just been invented called Vanta Black. Do you know about Vanta Black? It's, it's carbon nanotubes, like, sprayed onto a surface, right? Like, and it's the blackest thing ever. Like, it, it absorbs, like, 99.999% of... Is that, is that Nicky there? Yeah, and I remember I had a meeting with Nicky, my editor, and I said, well, what would be really cool is if we do the front cover in Vanta Black. <laughs> and Nicky was, like, commissioned. And, of course, then I realised it would have cost over £8,000 a book to buy. <laughs> and not only that, it would have a massive health risk as well. I think, but I brought a little bit for you to have a look at. This is the people who, who make Vanta Black, kindly. Anish Kapoor, the artist, I think, is doing some art in it. But I brought a little bit just so you can see it. Maybe, can I, do you want to have a little look at that? It's, you kind of, and I showed it to Al the other day, and I said, is space that black? And he's like, yeah, about that. Because you can't, it's like looking into a black hole. You can't, it does strange things. Maybe afterwards you can come and have a look, little look at my Vanta Black. Anyway, in a parallel universe, I did a book, and each cover was in Vanta Black, and you couldn't see it. It was so amazing in my parallel universe. Mm. A bit like Hot Black Desiato stunt ship in Hitchhiker, for those of you who remember... <laughs> The, the, the ship was so black you couldn't touch it. It was an idea. It, 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 got, it got edited out. But talking about... By Nicky. <laughs> and their bank account. It was <laughs> yeah, exactly. I, talking about ideas for books, I remember very clearly us meeting a few years ago and you saying that you would never write a book. Because, yes, and I, I'm going to say it again. No, I can't say that because I have to say, yes, I loved, loved every bit. It's, the thing is... It, writing books is really hard, especially something like this. If I was to write this book again, it would have completely different stories in it. I mean, because this, this is a mixtape of stories, basically, of the last year of my life. And there's so much stuff. 
and so much to research. And I wanted to write a book that really sort of covered everything, that really sort of captured the, 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 the imagination as much as anything else. Uh, and I thought, oh, it'll be really easy. You know, there's stuff I know about. I can write that, and I'll just, I'll just do some other stuff. And then I, and then I was like, oh, oh, there's quite a lot. <laughs> That's exactly Basically, what you said, yeah. yeah I did, well, I don't know if anyone's a member of the British Interplanetary Society. Anyone a member of the British Interplanetary No. <laughs> oh, don't say that. would be really upset. It's a, the British Interplanetary Society is great. It's the, it's the world. Are you a member? Say yes. No. You must be. Yes. Honest. Good. Yes. It's been there since 1933. All right, and it's the world's oldest space society where people, you know, like our friend Mr. Werner von Braun um, was there. And Arthur C. Clarke was, you know, he, all, these, all these luminaries were there. But they've got the most extraordinary library, a library, if, if anyone is interested in, in space and space flight and how we got there and how it all works, you go and you go, oh, my God, I didn't... There, there are so many books about the most extraordinary niche subjects you, you can't believe. You know, files from every... Mercury mission, Apollo mission, all kinds of stuff. And I had this idea that I wanted to have the whole library somehow condensed into one slim, carryable volume, priced $16.99, available from Amazon. Um, and, I, and then I realized, actually, it's quite difficult. So it was, quite, it was hard. But I managed it to a point, I think, I hope. Because uh, it, it meant I had to read every book, and that, was, that took a long time. And, I mean, but... Most authors yeah. are, have mixed views about how they enjoy the process of writing. How was it for you? Um, I, actually, when I, got in, it, it, when I found a subject, a story that I wanted to do, I loved it because it meant I could just either you know, research it deeply, which was terrific and fun. But it was all, it's like anything. It's that thing of you never have enough time. And actually... The hardest thing for any, anyone, who, any writer or any artist or painter is that thing of having a blank canvas. It's like, where the hell do you put that first brush stroke? You know, you've got a kind of vague thing in your mind, but it's not only that, it's you realize the clock is ticking. You can't just spend the rest of your life. I could just spend the rest of my life working this book, but actually you have a finite amount of time and, you know, all the other things that are going on in life. So I, it, is, it is a stressful process. Um, but... You know, I, I also think if you weren't busy, if you had all the time in the world, you'd never write a book. So yep. it's, that, it's that balance, I think. I, I, am, you know I am busy and I appear to be spending most of the rest of my life <laughs> writing my current book. But yeah. your, are we allowed to talk about your current? How is it? No, is we're it really okay? not allowed to talk stressful? about it. <laughs> it's quite stressful. But is the second book harder? Because I thought the second book, now you know what you're, what's in store. Now you can, just, yeah. you can just bang them out. No. no? no. <laughs> it's very second album experience. Is anyway. It? No, well, I, I, yeah, it was, a, it, was, it was a combination of the best time ever. Because, and also I got to meet people like Al. And in the book I got to meet other people, people like Beth Healy, who is a, a European Space Agency extreme doctor who winters over in Antarctica. And I actually thought, well, she's a really interesting person I want, I want to talk to. Because here's a person who practices being in space without ever leaving the planet. And that became a really interesting thing. So it's not, I, I don't just talk to astronauts, although I do talk to astronauts in the book. Other people as well. I, I talked to a space lawyer, Jill Stewart, about the question. Things like, you, things like you need to know if you want to leave the planet. Like, do I need a passport? What happens if I kill someone? You know, do, do I need to file my tax return? And actually, if you want to go to a lawyer, anyone who works with lawyers knows how bloody expensive lawyers are. So you get a free 
you know, legal consultation for 1699. So. I, I think I've actually spoken to that guy, and, and he was very interesting about if you're a small crew on Mars and one of you kills the other one, you can't just lock that person up because they might be really important to your mission. Yeah. <laughs> I, well, I, this, this is the problem about writing a book, because I became utterly fascinated with the moral and ethical implications of colonizing other planets and, like, how are we going to do this? It's all good to, are people going to start religions on Mars? How is that going to work? All this became... Anyway, so... A very, very nice interview with a space lawyer in there. So, I mean, th th there are, it is absolutely full of wonderful stories. And like I say, I mean, I thought I knew a lot about space, yeah. but there's a bunch of stuff here I'd never heard of. Actually, but there are things in here that are familiar because I know that you've been through them as experiences. And the one in particular, you were at Tim Peake's launch. Yeah, you? I was very lucky to... Yeah, it was a, so that was um, December 2015 for Tim, Tim's launch. And I'd, I'd met Tim before that, before he'd been up. I'd sort of done interviews with him for, for TV. But I, I was actually very lucky. It was actually because Liz Bonin, who you'll know from television, who was presenting Stargazing Live, couldn't do it because she was doing animals. Or whatever she does, animals. <laughs> so she was an, So I got the call from BBC. It was like, would you like to go and cover Tim's launch from the Baikonur Cosmodrome in Kazakhstan next week? And I was like, let me think about that for a micron second. <laughs> And yes was the answer. Um, partly because what a, what a great opportunity. And I, I'd actually been to Baikonur before. Baikonur for me is a, is a really interesting place. So if you, wanted to leave, if you wanted to leave the planet today, and I mean today, the only way you could do that is via the Baikonur Cosmodrome on the Soyuz launch vehicle. And of course, this is the, as we talked about, this is the same vehicle from the 1950s. And it's still launched from the same launch pad that launched Sputnik and Gagarin and Like of the Dog and all the, the sort of Russian side of things that you've heard about. That same launch pad. And so, yeah, I got to go out and I got to spend a little bit of time. Actually, the day before, we actually go to the Soyuz hangar where they sort of bolted all together. We got to film that. And then the actual launch itself, which was just extraordinary. And the suiting up as well. So we were with Tim the whole day. We follow him suiting up. And all the superstitions that you may have heard of, he has to sign the door, and he has to plant the tree, and he has to pee against the back tire of the bus that takes him to the launch pad. Yeah. Uh, who, could, who here has been to a launch of any rocket of any kind? I mean, not fireworks, you know. But, but, have we got any? Uh, has uh, anyone been to Baikonur? Anyone been to Baikonur? Or seen a shuttle launch? Shuttle launch. I thought, well, what I did, actually, when we, when we were here, the, our, our sound guy for the BBC, so this was from Stargazing Live, so we had Commander Hadfield was in the science museum. Were you there in the science museum? I can't remember. No. Which time? For Tim Peake's launch. Uh, no. So we had Chris Hadfield. Oh, I was here. I was here. Oh, we, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I was in the Chris's lectures. lectures. That's why I didn't go. Okay. Yeah. Oh, sorry. <laughs> sorry. They did, uh, Maybe did they ask? Did, when they, they asked me first. They asked me first. Yeah, I will get Dallas. Yeah, no, no. I, I always the understudy. I'm always the understudy. Yeah, so we had Chris Hadfield and Brian Cox and Dara O'Brien were in the science museum, and I was live 750 meters from the, the Soyuz. And the thing is about it's not like there's a big countdown. This 750 meters. You're 750 meters. Okay, and what there is, there's no kind of... I think people think of, like, launches as, like, shiny rockets and yada, yada. It's just a field with, like, tortoises there and, like, <laughs> stray dogs running around. It's like the... It is the 1950s. It's all, like, peeling paint, and, and there's just literally a barbed wire fence and a hill where all the press sit. And, and, we, and right there is, you know, is, 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 is the rocket. But I, our sound man, he had some new microphones, and he did this beautiful recording of just what it sounds like at 
750 meters. So I've got it, and I'm going to play it for you. And I'm going to, uh, can we play it quite loud? At sort of Soyuz level. So for those of you who haven't been to a launch... This is what it sounds like. They are indescribably loud. I mean, you've done... I, mean, I don't even know if it's as loud as the shuttle. But the other thing as well, if you look at that picture, if you look at the bottom, you can't look at it, it's so bright. And we forget that. I mean, the picture, you can obviously look at it. But it's like looking at a kind of welder's art. So here we go. Let's have a, let's have a listen. So that's the fuel injectors. That's just before it kicks off. And then it's like that. Well, I'll shut up, actually. That's my friend, my, my, my friend, uh, all right, how do I stop it? <laughs> the other thing I became obsessed about, and this is, I realize I'm straying into thong territory here, <laughs> is sort of astronaut training. And, and um, actually, did I tell you the story about, is, is Jackie here? Jackie Bell. I don't think she's here. My son's maths teacher, my, that's my son now, James. And uh, I was writing the, uh, writing the book, and... Um, he was having his maths tutor, and it was Jackie, who was his maths tutor. Uh, who, and I was talking to her about the fact that I'm writing a book about space, who then turns out to be in your program and was one of the oh, candidates. That's, oh, that's that, Yeah, and she didn't tell me. <laughs> she, like, didn't tell me she was going to be an astronaut and I was, whilst I was writing the book. And then she suddenly turned out, turned out to be, um, yeah. A so very there. good candidate. Exactly, very good, oh, yeah. very good candidate. Yeah, so uh, there you go. I mean, it, well, yeah, and it was, it was a fascinating process to go through, and we really did put those guys through the mill, but, I mean, it, it does take a lot to be an astronaut. The one thing I've learned writing this book, I, I would be the worst astronaut ever. Like, there are, there are amoeba on Saturn, or it, tortoises make good astronauts. Tim Peake makes a good astronaut, and actually talking to people like Tim, talking to people like Al Warden and other astronauts, and I know you've met lots of astronauts, there is just that, there is something that a thread. I mean, they're all individuals, obviously, but there is this thread that hangs them all together that you just, that I am, I don't have somehow. For, you know, just, I cannot work a PowerPoint presentation without losing my rag. That's, <laughs> you know, and the fact that being six months on the space station, having to do sort of IT things would the, the, freak there, me out. There have been angry astronauts, you know. I know. Well, yes. Uh, I, we could, do you want to expand on the, well, yeah. Well, Skylab. Sky, Sky, they went on strike on Skylab. Well, I talk about this because the, the they pop, sort of they went on sort strike. of didn't really go on strike, but the press sort of said they went on strike. I mean, yes. The they thing is, the role of the astronaut has changed, and this is kind of what I want to talk to you about. The role of the astronaut has changed because back in the day, in the 1950s, um, Project Mercury, we just got to get someone up there. You know, we need test pilots, and you know, the astronaut's job was to survive. One and to operate technology, to, to, to monitor technology. And then suddenly, you know, Gemini and Apollo came along, and astronauts also had to be, as well as uh, observers, they had to be technicians, and then they had to be scientists, and they had to be geologists. And then they had to be public relations people and, tech, and, and, and computer operators, and they had to be television presenters and everything else that goes with an, a, an astronaut. And so they had, it's an extraordinary 
thing now being an astronaut. It's not just, it's changed a lot. Well, it's an entirely different job. Well, look, we'll talk a bit about that after yeah. this, because um, uh, we did decide, having had some recent experience of trying to find out yeah. Whether people have the right stuff. Oh, if, if, we had, if we had anyone in the audience, well, uh, you might have can the I right just stuff. Read, can I just read this? So this is long before we actually picked astronauts, long before the term astronauts even existed. Uh, so this is Kepler. We all know who Kepler is. Thank you very much. Okay, so this is from his book Somnium. So this is written in the 1600s. And he was imagining this, a voyage into space and what kind of people would go into space. So this is the 1600s, all right? So this is the 1600 Tom Wolfe Wright stuff. We do not admit desk-bound humans into these ranks, nor the fat, nor the foppish. But we choose those who regularly spend their time hunting with swift horses or those who voyage in ships to the Indies and are accustomed to living on hard bread, garlic, dried fish, and other abhorrent foods. The best adapted for the journey are dried-out old women. Since from youth they are accustomed to riding goats at night or pitchforks or travelling the wide expanse of the earth in worn-out clothes. There are none in Germany who are suitable. But the dry bodies of Spaniards are not rejected. I think it's pretty close. Yeah, it's close to a selection today. Exactly. I mean. Talking of dry bodies of Spaniards, actually this is, this is of the same period. So this was um, a very, very early science fiction idea. This is how we were going to get to the moon. That chap there, Domingo Gonzalez, in a fictional story created by Bishop Francis Godwin in the early 1600s, who imagined a breed of goose, a, a goose that would migrate from the earth to the moon. And a bit like James and the Giant Peach, you could do that. You could just sort of tie them up and they would pull you to the moon. I loved that. Anyway, but that, and I, I got slightly obsessed by that. <laughs> but, I, but we could do this. Should we have okay, a little okay, go of this? Because we, we've got Kevin, who's an astronaut picker, trainer, kind of. Kind of. Kind of, <laughs> yeah. Right. <laughs> we thought because this is, we're at the RI, we should do some um, interactive things. So we're going to see if there are any astronauts in tonight. So ma maybe you could all stand up. And could we have a bit of house light? <coughs> so You're going to have to stand up. <laughs> do I have to stand up? Yeah. Oh, wow, there's people at the top. Okay. Right. 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 Well, I'll do this. You, you, so, you do this. So, so this, is, this is the fastest astronaut selection we will ever, ever do. So, yeah. Uh, uh, so we're going to put you through the screening uh, uh, tests now. So let's go, let's go for question one. Question one. So if this is not you, sit down. Okay, so this is, this is from the NASA um, application. Okay, so... Oh, hang on. Oh, see... Can, can you work PowerPoint? No, I can't. Yeah, this is why down, I'd be a, a, a shit ass. Uh, oh, um, um, okay, so... Okay, so if this is not you, you have to sit down, I'm afraid. Bachelor's so. degree in engineering, biological science, physical science, computer science, or mathematics. Okay. Have we got anyone standing? <laughs> all right, all right. You've got what? Hang on, well, hang on. Or at least three years of uh, related, what does it say? So at least three years of related, progressively responsible professional experience. Or at least a thousand hours of pilot in command time in a jet aircraft. Okay, so if that's not you, you have to sit down. <laughs> okay. Can okay, I just okay. say that there is, a, there is a point to this. The winner of this is going to win a prize. So if you want to lie, I'm not going to be checking. I won't be checking. Okay, so the next one. Oh, well, this is me out. Distant and near visual acuity, correctable 2020. Okay. Okay, okay, let's have a listen up. So if you don't have perfect eyesight, you're going to have to sit down at this point. Or you can't, 
correct. You can't correct your eyesight to perfect. Okay. Okay, next one. Blood pressure not exceeding 140 over 90 measured in a sitting position. Yeah, okay. That, that's, that's good. All right, all right. I'm glad no one's got a blood pressure of over 140 over 90, otherwise they'd have to see them after the lecture, I think. All right. We have a... Yeah. Uh, Kevin will look after you because that's what he does for a living. Height between 62 and 75 inches. All right, um, we're, 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 getting, we're getting pretty thinned out here. Okay. Um, okay, here we go. Official scuba qualification. <laughs> I, th I didn't have my glasses on. I was convinced that was Chris Hadfield. I'm like, <laughs> shit, we got Chris Hadfield in. All right. Um, swimming, th I can do this. Swimming three lengths of a, of a, of a 25 meter pool without stopping. Then swimming another three lengths of the pool in a flight suit and wearing tennis shoes. Have we got it? We've still got someone. We've got one person. And then, um, here's the kicker. <laughs> <laughs> Come on, you can figure it out. Really? Actually, that last one, that, the, last one is, the last one is really, really important because... Um, you know, if you want to be an astronaut and you're going to fly on Soyuz, then you need to be able to speak Russian. Did we have anyone? Because I'm going to actually put... Well, okay, we have one. I need a couple of volunteers because it's... Can I have a young volunteer? Can we have... Uh, yes, the, the gentleman there. And we need someone else. Come on, astronaut. And I don't know whether you covered this on your program, but my favourite astronaut training exercise... Can we have... Where was our other astronaut? There you go. Yeah, oh, hang on, go, I, I can't go, see it. There's a lady coming down from the back, I think. Oh, I tell you what, we'll have this, can we have this young lady here? This, we're going to have this young lady. Oh, come on, you can come. We'll have three astronauts. Um, my favourite astronaut picking thing ever was the, was the, is the Japanese Space Agency. And they have a, they, what they do is they train their astronauts. They lock them up in solitary confinement for a few days, okay? And they ask them, they say... What we'd like you to do is we'd like you to make 1,000 origami cranes, yeah. paper cranes, okay? And they've got a certain amount of time to do it. So they've got three days to make 1,000 origami. You understand. What's your name? Clara. 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 Yeah. Great. Nice to meet you, Clara. Benji. Dawn. Dawn. Okay, so you've got a certain amount of time to do this, okay? And what they would do is all those 1,000 paper cranes would then be analysed by the astronaut picking person to make sure the very last crane that was made was as good and as accurate. And it was a great test of patience and skill and being methodical, etc. So what I'd like, we've got three of you here. I would like you to come and sit over here. Benji and Kleena, if you come and sit there. What I've got here is the instructions to make origami paper cranes. <laughs> and, here, and Dawn, you can come and supervise this as well. And so there you go. And here's some origami paper. And so whoever makes the best paper crane for the rest of the talk, will, and this, I'm, I kid you not, will win the chance to go into space. Well, all right, so there well. is, it's all to play for. Let's, so, let's manage expectations a little bit here. <laughs> no, no, no. The uh, <laughs> chance. Okay. These are children space. we're talking about. No, okay, it's all, um, it's all good. I, I, okay, good. Yes. All right, brilliance. This is Dallas Campbell's astronaut selection program. It's, it's brutal and rigorous. Yes. Yes. The, the, the Japanese really did that. I think they. I think they actually. The, they did it once. They asked them to make a thousand cranes. Yeah. I think that, that was it. 
which I definitely would have failed. I know. Yeah, I, I don't. I, I was kind of expecting you guys to do it on the show, and I was disappointed. No, we did. Well, we, did we did an origami test, and and yeah, it was interesting. Okay. How are, you, how are you guys getting on? Are they are they are they there? I was going to move on to this. We should talk a little bit because I want to talk a little bit about space tourism, which is oh, okay. something that you that something that you've been. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's really about where we're going next. Because I mean, you know, most of our it all becomes a bit of a muddle, doesn't it? The stuff in the middle, Apollo, and then and then we have shuttle, uh, uh, well, and 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 now we're up into the current era. Yeah. Let me just show you this actually, because you'll like this, Kevin. This is um, this is a, a picture of every single vehicle that has taken human beings into space. Okay, so all the way. Up, so that's the, you know, Vostok one. That is the R seven that took up you know, Sputnik, all the way through to the Mercury Redstone, to the Atlas. This kind of aeroplane here, that's the B-52 carrier plane that took the X-15, all the way through to the great Saturn V, you can see there. And via the Soyuz, which is the only vehicle still going. In fact, actually, that, the, the Chinese Long March rocket, if yeah. you're Chinese and you're in the Chinese space program, you will be going up in that. And then right at the end here, we have the White Knight and the, the Virgin Galactic uh, space plane, which, you know, they've been talking about for a long time, and you've just been out there, I think. Yep, yep. We're launching in two years' time. Which when you is, say we, when is I that say, both I say, of us? I say, I say, yeah, you yeah, yeah, I got okay. your seat, buddy. <laughs> okay. uh, uh, I mean, the, uh, there's lots of things in space that people say it's going to happen, you know, a few years in the future. So, so we've been going to Mars in 20 years' time since about the 1960s. I mean, I mean, literally, that's what everyone says. We're going in 20 years, we're going in 20 years. And they, they, since the 1960s, there have been plans to go to Mars. They had very mature plans for us to go to Mars in the 1980s. That's just never happened. Uh, with space tourism, a similar thing has happened. I mean, I mean uh, a lot of those people said, oh, we'll be flying tourists into space sometime soon. And it hasn't quite happened yet. I think we're on the verge. I've just come back from a, a New Mexico with Virgin Galactic's operation. And, and they look like they're pretty close now. Because they were delayed because they had, a, they had a, an accident a couple of years ago where the pilot was killed yeah. in, a, in a test. And how much did that set the whole thing back? The whole, I mean, we were back on schedule again. So that's my understanding, but but can you it, tell us, or are you smart? I, 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 well, I have to shoot you, and, <laughs> and, and, and so, so, so I can't. Well, I, I mean, I, I work for their medical advisory group, and and I'm not allowed to really <laughs> talk about very much. Only to say that it seemed to me that they were much closer than I've ever seen them before. But but generally, just space is space is hard, and and, and that's what you know. You know, and it's not just slightly faster passenger flight. It's not just slightly further. Uh, there's a whole layer of complexity that makes you wonder how anyone ever did it w without coming a cropper in the first place. Uh, and so, but it's, this is an interesting era. You know, there's a wonderful book called This New Ocean by, I think it's William Burroughs, where he talks this, about the story of the first space age. And I think where we are now and where we were in your lovely picture of rockets is, is sort of the edge of the second space age where, you know, a wider fraction of society is going to have access to space. So, so... I think this is the time when that happens. I think I, I agree, and I think it's interesting just just to sort of clarify. So something like the the Virgin Galactic space plane, which is the most famous one. This is a, um, a you have a carrier aircraft which then drops a rocket propelled spacecraft, which will carry you over what's known as the Kármán line. This is this hundred uh, kilometer official boundary where space begins. I mean, obviously it's an arbitrary line, but once you go over a hundred kilometers, that's when you you can say, I am an astronaut, and that's sort of aeronautics 
becomes astronautics. So you've got the Virgin Galactic, but it's not, it's not an orbital flight. You won't, you won't sort of go full round the Earth like the International Space Station. So it's like a big parabola that takes you up and over. So you have your moment of weightlessness as you hit that top bit, and then you come gliding down a bit like the space shuttle down to Earth. But there's another one, the Blue Origin one, which is um, not a space plane, but it is a, a, a sort of ballistic, um, like an Apollo capsule, which blasts off, and then that does a similar trajectory, so you get your weightlessness, you get your overview effect where you can see the Earth, and then that parachutes back down. And I don't know how much of a race is on between those two different uh, systems, but listen, how much the, 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 the price varies if, yeah, if people wanted to buy a ticket. I mean, they're not quite equivalent operations, but there's a huge race to be the first to do that, and they're not the only players in the game. Of course, you've got Elon Musk's team, who have had some incredible successes recently. So... You know, I think maybe this is the time, and um, if you can save up a quarter of a million pounds... Is that how much it's a quarter of a million? Yeah, in fact, it's only one it's of nothing us. nothing for million quid. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> With your, you're still living on the Royal Institution lecture yeah. fees. That's yeah, it's, 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 it's put, a bit tricky. I put this up, actually, because... Just because you know, people obviously want to talk about space tourism and where we are with this, but this is from the 1960s. This is 1968. This was Pan Am's... It's actually one of the first loyalty cards, I realised, that Pan Am realised that they could encapsulate or just jump on the bandwagon at that time of, we're going to the moon. And if you watch something like 2001, the, the famous Kubrick film, we see right at the beginning this idea of taxis going from the Earth to the moon, and it's all a bit like flying on Earth. And Pan Am, of course, were, were in the film. You see the Pan Am logo, and they, they chanced on this. They had this as an idea where you could sign up for this whenever it is that Pan Am build their first space vehicle and you would be on a list. And of course, there was no space vehicle at all, but it just captured that excitement, this dream that all of us at some point want to leave the planet and go somewhere and be, and be, be space tourists and yeah, walk I'm, on another planet. It's, it's funny that you mentioned that, because 2001 was so prescient in so many ways <laughs> in that it preempted that idea of commercial access to space. And then... And I think it has a very good model of the way I expect it to be in the future if we're going to continue, which is, you know, a commercial provider gets you into low Earth orbit, and then the next stage of your exploration is governments, and yeah. still, and and and, and that, that that frontiersmanship is still the job of multinational uh, cooperation by state players. And I, I, you know, I think that if we're going to continue, that's how it's going to be. So. You've got to cheer those guys on. I still can't quite work out whether Elon Musk is yeah is gonna get that. Is he a PR man like Von Von Braun? You know, he, you know, he gets everyone excited with his big fanciful projects of we're all gonna of hundreds of spaceships flying to Mars. Well, I don't know. I think he might be more more than that. I wondered whether he was like the Howard Hughes of our time. For a long time, I wondered that. You know that very, very clever with the capability and the means to build these wonderful vehicles, that aerospace vehicles, but none that are actually practical in the end. But, but I now suspect that he might be more than that still. I mean, some of, some of his, his reusable first stage, that, yeah. you know, this rocket is incredible when you watch it. The first time I saw it, you know, it launches and then it, land, it launches vertically and then it lands vertically. And when you see it coming in, it, it's like a comedy film that's been played backwards. You know, it just flies in and then turns its engines on the last minute and just lands. Well, but just, but yeah. it's so successful. But you, and, you, and because of that, you're not, he's not a man you would bet against. I mean, here is a man who's completely revolutionized access to low Earth orbit, as well as electric cars and solar panels, et cetera, in, in his spare time. So when Elon Musk stands on stage and says, we're going to go to Mars in these big rockets, you kind of go, maybe we will. Yeah, yeah. Maybe we will. 
But he's got a plan to send a couple of people around the moon, I think, in the next couple of years as well. On... Well, everyone's I got... get confused. Every day he's got to think. Everyone's got plans, but I mean, when I was sitting in the offices when I used to work um, at NASA at Johnson Space Center, when they first mooted the idea of commercial space flight and, and, and private companies putting people into space, independent of space agencies, I just thought, it, and not just I, everyone around me thought it was just clear bonkers. And yet, very shortly after that, we had commercial space participation on the Russian space station, yeah. uh, and now the International Space Station through the Soyuz. Uh, and so, who knows? Uh, and 10 years is a long time. It does feel like we're on a brink, though. If you are planning on leaving the planet, this is a good time to, to be. I mean, 20 years ago, or even, you know, the beginning of the 90s when it was Shuttle Mir, we, we weren't having these kinds of conversations. And it's partly, I think, because of the, the digital revolution, because of social media, suddenly we're all thinking about space again. And suddenly, it's like we, we're stepping on the accelerator pedal. Uh, and you have very, very rich individuals, so it's not just governments who can stump up the cash in order to be able to, in order to, be able to do this. Um, now, we're into our last half an hour or so of this, and I think I wanted to open it up a little bit uh, to... Yeah. If anyone's got any questions, I, I was going to so, think... Uh, just, just as you show a picture of the least uh, space thing so, ever, um, uh, well, I, I, I thought I would open it up to the... No, well, actually, let's tell, I'll tell you what. I'll let you think of questions you have for Dallas... Uh, uh, at, at this point, and Dallas is now going to explain to me how a bit of toast gets yeah. into the whole thing of space. Well, I mean, you know, if you're going to leave the planet, there are things you're going to have to think about. And obviously, if we're going to be going to Mars, that's a long time. And, you know, if you're going to go to Mars, there's no, like, Nando's on Mars. It's things like eating, uh, surviving is going uh, to be difficult, and, and we're trying to work that out at the moment. But the history of food in space is really interesting, because the, the Obviously, the, the Project Mercury uh, days, and obviously Gemini particularly, when we were planning on going to the moon, and that's only a, you know, that's a 10-day trip there and back. You know, you can live on sort of camping food. And this, I brought actually just some examples of kind of, this is, the sort of, this is actually from the International Space Station. Um, these are the, the sort of the traditional kind of space food as we think about it. You know, you add water to these. But this is from, it was John Young, the astronaut, Gemini 3, 1965, Three days before his launch, uh, Gemini was the mission before Apollo, by the way. So Gemini was a two a, a two man mission whereby, or two, you know, there were several Gemini missions, but it was a where they were testing all kinds of things like docking maneuvers and and and, 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 and equipment, engineering equipment, and also what what is it that these guys are going to be eating on the way to the moon? And so John Young he went to uh, Wolfie's Diner in the Ramada Inn. <coughs> Cocoa Beach and the Cape. Oh, I know it well. Do you know yeah. it? You must no, have been. <laughs> and he ordered a corned beef sandwich, and without telling anyone, he snuck it in his spacesuit pocket and, and like just took it up into space. <laughs> and then and I've, got the, I've got the transcript in there, so you can actually read it. And halfway through the mission, he just like pulled it out and said, oh, I've got a corned beef sandwich. <laughs> and Gus Grissom, who was there, was like, great. You know. And then, but the trouble is that the bread started crumbling. It, started, it wasn't very structurally intact. So they hurriedly put it back because the last thing you want in space is crumbs. Um, so anyway, that, that sandwich is now preserved in that bit of plastic in the Gus Grissom Museum in Indiana. You knew that, didn't you? Exactly. <laughs> Good so answer. if you want to see it, that was the world's first space sandwich. And you'll know her. This is Peggy Whitston. They've solved the, the space sandwich conundrum many, many years later. Uh, they actually used tortilla bread. Uh, up, on, up on the space station because it kind of holds everything together and it doesn't crumb and it lasts for a long time. So that's Peggy Whitson's cheeseburger tortilla, which is good. It's got all really chef-y as well. Do you, have you seen these as well? 
Torsten Schmidt, he's, this, he's, a kind of, he's known as the Nordic alchemist. He's got a Michelin star, a bit like Heston Blumenthal, who did lots of Tim Peake's food. It became a, it's become like a really kind of chef-y thing now. They have these tie-ins with astronauts and chefs. And he did these kind of like Ferrero Rocher-type things, <laughs> but hollow, and he spray-painted them silver, and they're, they're made of chocolate, and you can eat them. And inside, you put little notes uh, from the loved ones you know, uh, to, to the astronauts. I think it's rather nice. And I've got the recipe. Torsten and I very, very kindly let me publish the recipe for Space Rocks. Space Ferrero Rocher. The ambassador's reception in space. <laughs> I'll go to that one. So, yes. So, I'll be, yeah. so foods, it's important. An army marches on its stomach. If we're going to go to Mars, we're going to... They're going to need Ferrero We're going to need Ferrero Rocher, because <laughs> you never know who you're going to meet. That's true. Yeah. Now, have yes. we got any questions, any questions? from our audience? Uh, and one up there. Wait for a microphone. John will get we'll up talk, to you. The other thing I want to no, talk about as well, if we do have time, is, is what to wear as well. But we'll, we'll take a few questions and then we'll come back. It's a, guy, it's a, guy, it's a, a story about robotics and myths of autonomy. It's by a guy called David Mindell, which Kevin Fong interviewed. And that story was what he's really saying was in underwater explanation, we don't send people down below, we send machines and robots because the communications got so much better and you can have all the scientists and all the research on the ship and the remote device gets the data and it's the data that's important and how you get it. So is there really any need to send people into space going ahead? Yes. <laughs> I think, well, I mean, it, it's... You know, it's the, it's the age-old debate. It's one of the, everyone's favorite topics. Do we send robots? And obviously, robots have been extraordinary. We think of things like Voyager. We think of um, Mariner 4. We think of Cassini. All these wonderful probes, this extension of ourselves, the Curiosity rover that does amazing things. But even so, you can't, beat a, you can't beat a human being, I think, doing science on another planet, just knowing which rock to pick up and sort of look under is one thing. But also, there, it's just, you know, this is every astronaut I've spoken to, everyone involved, there is something more, there is something just within us that we need to explore. And of course, you know, it's the, the phrase, the final frontier, space is just an extension of our, of our wanderlust. It would be, we need, we, we need to explore. We, we're not very good at just sitting still. And there's all, you know, there's all the arguments about we need to leave the planet because of climate change and da-da-da, whatever, Brexit alien advice, whatever it is. But there is just that inherent desire to, to do it, I think, which, which trumps everything. Yeah, I, I mean, yes, except for it's very difficult to qualify it just on that because it's there, you know, that famous quote from uh, Mallory, uh, you know, about climbing mountains and, well, because it's there. And, and, but it's in the book. It, <laughs> is there anything that isn't in the it's book? It's all in there. It's, the it's like a little TARDIS. It's like a micro TARDIS. You talked about David Mendel there. David Mendel is a professor of astronautics at MIT who sort of become uh, sort of a bit of a mate. Uh, and actually, I spoke to him at a time when he was very down on humans in space, actually. He marveled at the Apollo guidance computer and what it had allowed humans to do, but basically said, eventually, robots and automated platforms are going to supersede it all. But he, he has actually changed. He's written another book, and he's now sort of said it's not really all about replacing humans with automatics, but it's much more about the interface between the two. And actually, that's where the thinking of most of the space agencies is. It's yeah. the right partnership uh, between humans and, and, and robots uh, and automated platforms. So I still think there'll be a role. There may come a time, and also with all this, this news recently about 
uh, artificial intelligence where, you know, robots, automated platforms are every bit as capable as a human being, every bit as adaptable, every bit as able to recognize patterns as, as the best of our human explorers. But when that time comes, we'll have much more to worry about than whether or not they're exploring space for us. Like Brexit. It's going to be trundling on for many years. Um, um, Sorry, we have I, another question I, up I there. I apologize, so I'll yeah. shut up about Brexit. So, um, I thought it was fascinating when you said how um, quickly it was after the Rice University talk that they actually you know, put the man on the moon. Um, do you know, the question's in two parts, do you know how many people were employed to make that happen? Yes, I, I can't remember the number. It's some, do, you, do you know the number? Are you asking because you know the number? No, no, no. I, 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 I just make something up. No, yeah, I can't, I wish Chris Riley was here because Chris knows the number. I can't, it's something X, it, well, 100,000. So the problem about that is whether it's directly employed yeah. or, or, or indirectly employed because actually the whole thing is a huge cascade and that's how it's built operationally. So you've got three people in capsule uh, moving up. And then behind them, we've got Mission Control, which is a room about the size of this theatre, which has about 50 people in it, all with a specific role. But they then cascade back to a back room, which is, you know, full of a bunch of bright engineers. And that back room, by telephone, cascades back to the universities. And then there's all the manufacturing lines that are in various bits all across the United States. It is in the it's tens of thousands. It's, it's more. It's, it's a maybe huge amount of people. But the important thing is actually not just the people, but it's also the budget. So, yeah. so during Project Apollo, uh, the spend on space by the federal government was 5% of, 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 of everything that the United States spent that year, full stop, as a, as a federal government. And after Apollo, it fell back to 0.5%. So what they do now in space is on a budget that's an order of magnitude less than what they had during the 1960s. Yeah. And it's probably not going to go up. I mean, you know, our exploration of the, the cosmos, where we become one, as Tsiolkovsky wanted, in our sort of new transhumanist post-Brexit world... Uh, uh, sorry, I'll shut up about Brexit. Um, we're not going to suddenly putting all our... GDP into space no. travel again. I mean, the, the it, 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 absolutely. And it, I mean, it, yes, it's about the number of people, but it's really about the amount of money. And and Apollo <laughs> was a surrogate battlefield for nuclear war, and it was yeah. it was fought on a war budget. And although the it, we think about it as science exploration. Yeah, no, absolutely. And the interesting thing is, that, you know, we, NASA for the last few years have been talking about the whole portmanteau of NASA has been journey to Mars, and even that now it's not about journey to Mars anymore. It's about deep space gateway. Now it is about exploring and testing technologies in between in, in the space between the moon and the Earth and maybe developing a moon base or, or, or an orbiting lunar facility. So even the kind of... NASA's red hot on, on Mars a couple of years ago, it's slightly shifted. I, yeah, I'm beginning to hear they might be switching back to the moon, or at least... Oh, no, they're definitely switching back to the moon. I mean, they definitely... And you, people, you talk to people like Robert Zubrin, who I know you know, who are like, look, if you want to go to Mars, go to Mars. The moon is not on the way to Mars. If you want to go to Mars, you just do it. And, yeah. But going to Mars is difficult and it's expensive. And we're not, I don't think we're there yet. We don't have the technology there. You can go, but it's all about the risk. Does anyone have another question for us? Uh, and young gentleman back there, second row. And then, uh, I want to talk about spacesuits after this. How oh, long yeah. does it take to get to space? I mean, It's a really good moon? question. I'll just consult the Tim Peake book. <laughs> <coughs> well, the interesting thing is it's not no time at all because if we're talking about the official boundary of space, which is 100 kilometres, so that's from here to Portsmouth or somewhere? Yeah, What's it's slight, slightly harder drive than here to Portsmouth. It is. <laughs> but it's in, the, it's, in the, it's in the order of minutes. It's, it's sort of 10 minutes so, you're there. So, so yeah, I mean, I mean, main engine cutoff and you're floating in space is about eight minutes for shuttle it was at least. So, so 
you know, uh, space station is out there at about 240, 250 miles. So it is closer than you think, but it's a, in, in space, the hardest 250 miles are the first 250 miles because you're fighting, fighting gravity all the way. And actually, the further you get from Earth, the easier it gets. When you're, once you're in Earth orbit, actually, the energy you need to go to somewhere else is much, much less. So it takes only a few minutes, about eight minutes. When I used to go to shuttle launches... <laughs> when I used to go to space. Uh, yes, yeah, yeah, when I used to go to shuttle launches, uh, you know, it was over very quick. And when we're, you know, that, that recording that Dallas played of the launch, I mean, it, it is an insane thing to watch because you know, that, you know what this object is, you know how heavy it is, you know how big it is, and when you see it move, you think... This is too, it's too far away to be that bright and moving that fast for an object that large, and yet it is. And it, your brain doesn't quite want to accept it. It is, it is really hard. And actually, it used to take a lot longer. So on Soyuz, getting to the International Space Station used to take quite a long time because they would orbit first, and then they would extend their orbit until they actually docked with the ISS. But they do it much quicker now. We're uh, going to take a question oh, from up there and then back down here. So one up Hi. there. I Hello. Hi. It's me up here. Oh, hello. Um, I hello. can't see you because there's a light in my eye. It's me up here. Um, you have mentioned things like Jules Verne. You've mentioned yes. Fritz Lang, um, 2001, and a cheeky callback, I think, to Star Trek. Um, what about, you, you say that if we hadn't had that science fiction, we wouldn't have gone to the moon because that was an inspiration. And I'm a big believer in, in science fiction kind of inspires the science that we actually end up with. Yeah. What in science fiction today would you like to see happen in space exploration? What, what would you really wish we could do? I'd like to build Death Star. <laughs> yeah. Why, 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 why wouldn't you do that? Elon I... Musk is like totes going to build a Death Star. <laughs> He's like all over that. He, like, he really is. I don't know. Well, it's funny, actually. If you look at the, kind of, what are the, the big sort of space science fiction, things like the Martian... You know, it's got NASA all over it. It's, it's almost like a kind of tie-in with actually what's going in. What's going yeah, on. I, I, I love the Martian. I was, I, was in, I was in Houston when it played out, and they did a special screening for, for the guys at Johnson Space Center. And I was, sit, I was sitting uh, later in, in a cafe with a few people, and a couple of them were astronauts. I said, did you see that film? It's really good. It's really accurate. It's, there's a lot of, a lot of, a lot of, a lot of good, good fact in that. I didn't know any of that stuff. <laughs> I would have just sat there and died. <laughs> on, the, uh, on, the, on, on the Mir space station, so the space station before the International Space Station, they had a, the, uh, American shuttle astronauts would come and spend time with the Russians and, and where they were experimenting with long-duration space flight. And they had movie flights. Like Mike Fold, the British-American astronaut, they had a big accident on board the Mir space station, whereby uh, um, the Progress supply ship, Russian Progress supply ship, actually pierced the hull, and they almost lost the ship, and it was almost a disaster, but they managed to save it. The night after they fixed it all, they, they watched Apollo 13 on board, <laughs> just, just to make them feel better, you know? So, I mean, every astronaut I've met, you know, loves all, you know, they all love, I mean, I know, I mean, Tim Peake, they, they had Alien up there watching Alien and stuff. So, yeah. uh, 2001, again, was another movie that... that you, you'll, you, you'll be surprised at how often in the hospital, in your break time, you go into the golf room and they're all watching Holby City. So, uh, <laughs> right, yeah. um, we have a question there and then one there. Yeah, so one there and then one there. Hi, yeah, I mean, one, one of my uh, big questions is about Mars, and it's um, what actually is the one single biggest problem to solve, either biologi biologically, you know, with the human body, or scientifically, to get to Mars? Sorry. Oh, okay, so what, what's the biggest problem yeah, to get to Mars? What's the one oh single God. biggest problem that's stopping us from getting to Mars? 
it's such a difficult question because there's so many problems. I mean, there's the obvious health problems, which are, which are immense, because going to Mars, certainly under the, the current speed at which we do it, even at its closest point, is how long? Nine months? It's six to nine months. Six to nine months. Yeah. You've got a six to nine month journey cooped up in a tin can, and then, you know, and when you get there, how long are you going to stay? So, I mean, I, you know, actually, the, the sort of psychological effects of, of that are going to be absolutely immense. I mean, I mean just, just on that, particularly astronauts, even going to the moon, you, you are still in direct contact with the Earth in that you can physically see it. You know, when you're in the inter on the International Space Station, the Earth is right there. Even when you're on the moon, the Earth is right there. Suddenly, not having the Earth at all, just as a, as a, as a dot, I think it's going to be a very interesting problem. Food, obviously, propulsion, energy when we get there. How do we land on Mars? Mars has a very, very thin atmosphere. So how are we actually going to develop a craft that would be able to land big payloads? I mean, obviously, the biggest we've landed is something is the Curiosity rover, and that was very difficult. So the thin atmosphere of Mars, radiation, uh, not just on the journey to Mars, but when we get there, solar and, and cosmic radiation is going to be a massive problem. Um, getting back is going to be a huge problem. Developing energy when we get... I mean, it's just an endless list. I don't know if there is one... There's an endless list of problems. A different way of thinking about it is that we've been hitting Mars since the mid-1970s successfully. So the astrodynamics are there. We can get stuff up. Then it's size of payload. But that's really all about a bigger rocket, and, and we can do that too eventually. I think it's all about risk. So it's not about single biggest obstacle. I think that if you really wanted to do it, you could probably do a Kennedy-esque before this decade is out. But it's what risk are you willing to accept? And there were some mission analysis studies that said that catastrophic risk is 5% for those missions. You know, uh, And so a 1 in 20 chance of everyone dying during that mission. Now, do we? And that's a real interesting irony that the most ambitious expedition in the history of our species will be undertaken by the most risk-averse society in the history of our species. And that's hard to square. So the obstacle, I think, might well be cultural. Um, let's yeah. take that question up there. If you could, um, if you could choose yeah. three things to take to space, what would it be? Three things. Wow. How many children do you have? <laughs> I know. No, both of them there. Yes. Both my children. This is awkward. I don't know. Actually, my children would be much better in space than I'd be. I don't know. So okay, one, two, three. <laughs> Can I take my editor for? Yeah, no. It's a really good question. Actually, um, astronauts, when they go up, they're allowed personal preference kits, little bags. And obviously, weight is very, very important, so they're encouraged not to take sort of anvils or anything like that. But obviously, they're allowed to take things like photographs and, and mementos and other trinkets and bits and pieces. Uh, Tim Peake, for example, as well as photographs, he had like a little lucky coin. All the astronauts have a coin which they put on the track of the actual uh, train that pulls the Soyuz vehicle out of the hangar and crushes the coin, and they all take that coin with them as a, as a lucky memento. Um, I'd probably take a sandwich, maybe one. I'd, I'd struggle. You know what? I'd cheese. Things like cheese I'd really miss. Or Some, a tortoise. Or a tortoise. Well, yeah. I... What would you take if you could take three things? Food, water, uh, and oh, clothes. I see, I see where we're going. Oh, you segue. <laughs> you want to stay alive. Uh, segue neatly okay. into my next okay. story. All right. Um, so we've got about eight minutes left, and we've got to judge our astronaut competition All right. and possibly see a spacesuit. Do you want me to take one question, one last question, good. and then we stuffing. can do... Um, do you reckon the tardigrade came from outer space? Well, <laughs> good question. If you read my book, priced sixteen ninety nine. I have a whole section on tardigrades um, because 
you know, I mentioned earlier that the tortoise would be the best, the best um, space creature, the best pet to take up. Actually, I was wrong. The tardigrade, for those of you who don't know, that is, I don't know if you can see, that is a tardigrade. Uh, tardigrades are unbelievably hardy They're very hardy. creatures. They're also extraordinary looking. I don't know if you can see that. But they, I always imagine, because they're actually tiny, sort of a millimeter long. And they can live for years and years and years without any food, without any water, and are impervious to radiation. And they've actually been on the space station. And actually learning a little bit about how tardigrades react to the vacuum of space is, is really, really interesting. I often think if a tardigrade was the size of an actual bear, because they're called water bears as well, it would be the most revered creature on Earth. They're such extraordinary-looking, bizarre things. I have a little tardigrade section for, for you, which I put in for you. Page 52. But do you think they came from space stars? Well, it's a, it's a philosophical question, because ultimately, aren't we all made of stardust? So technically, we all came, and we're in space, just on a planet. Do you mean sort of fully formed from another planet and then arrived like panspermia, I think it's called? Yeah. Possibly not. I think, they, I think they evolved through Darwinian processes here on Earth, I'm guessing. But a very interesting form of life. And actually our, actually, our study of not just things like tardigrades, but of extremophile life on Earth, and as our knowledge of life on Earth in, in, in improves, and we realize just how hardy life is. And it means that our quest for the search for life beyond Earth is getting clearer, perhaps. I mean, it suddenly seems much more likely that life of some basic variety, and tardigrades are quite complex, really, uh, you know, may have been able to move between uh, celestial objects. And certainly that there's also some, some theories that life may have risen on Earth and then been aerosolized you know, in, into Earth orbit before returning. So, so uh, there's some, life is much harder than we ever thought, as in much hardier than we ever thought it yeah. was. And that sadly... Is this, is that, we brings answer? us to the end of this evening. Uh, and so uh, before we say our final goodbyes, uh, this evening's been about this very... Uh, it genuinely is. I'm not, not, I'm not just saying this because Dallas is my mate. <laughs> uh, and it's certainly not because he's paying me, because he's not. Um, uh, uh, I'm paying uh, you in... Um, it is actually a very, 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 very wonderful book. Uh, and, uh, you know, um, it leaves me to congratulate Thank you. Dallas, Thank on you. writing the book that you said Thank you'd you never write. Much. 